From FingerLakes1.com, welcome to a Thanksgiving edition of the Weekend Debrief. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio once again by Ted Baker. He is the host of Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. Uh, we've got a lot to get to uh, in this holiday edition of the show. Ted, welcome back. Here we are once Good to again. Be here again. Always appreciate it. And it's only been a couple days. Yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing. Uh, you know how quickly things can uh, bubble up and percolate here in the Finger Lakes, even though we are in a bit of a uh, bit of a rural news desert here between Rochester and Syracuse. The major media markets, of course, we're living this every day. Um, <clears throat> holiday plans? What are they? Staying home? I'm gonna be. I, I'm not a big traveling person. We our Thanksgiving for a long time has just been uh, intimate gathering at home. Yeah. Uh, we will have a syndicated program called America's First News on both tomorrow and Friday. So, uh, it, very nice show. It covers all the headlines and everything. Nationally, of course, not locally, but we'll still have local news. So, uh, but we do get a couple of days off. Nice four-day weekend. You get two days away from the microphone. Yeah. Dragging you here on a day when you should be getting ready for that two-day break. Thanks for doing it anyway. Um, so, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we touched on COVID reporting last week. Um, and then I, I wrote an op-ed uh, this past weekend uh, published it basically outlining the things that I was talking about last week. So the specific ways in which COVID reporting to this point has fallen short. And it was interesting because the feedback on it was uh, mixed in terms of, of people who wrote to me who are readers said, yes, thank you for saying this. We want to see more. We want to see more consistent. It's hard to understand. It's this, that, the other thing, whatever the case may be. And that goes to the point, I think, that every county is doing something different, which we, which we already talked about. Um, but then the other interesting point was, I think, that for, and this was a bit of the feedback that I had sort of gotten secondhand over the last, say, four or five days. Um, county officials and county health officials feel like their backs are up against the wall. They are taking it from all angles. And while those of us who are out here um, asking for, in my view, the state to step in and better organize this data or better organize it in such a way so that the, the counties have the right tools um, to you know be putting out the right information in the right way or in a unified way, um, they they are taking those criticisms very personally. And I think the one thing that I wanted to mention today was just that it is not personal in any way, shape, or form. Our, my criticism of uh, response thus far has been wholly on the state and not really on the county. I mean, I, I do I think you know there have been opportunities perhaps missed by some county officials in the way that they have... Uh, executed the messaging or whatever the case may be. Sure, we talked. You and I talked on your show a few weeks ago about Ontario County um, and how they sort of had that back and forth with what uh, you know what they called a block party. It wasn't a block party, that sort of thing. Um, but other than that, a few little like messaging issues. Uh, this is not a problem that I think is the fault of any local health department. This this issue that we have been keying in on for a couple weeks now with regard to reporting and data and how that information is disseminated is on the state. Or at the very least, as someone mentioned to me, perhaps it's on the regional uh, control rooms. Maybe they're the ones who need to be doing a better job of, of getting their their uh, the counties inside each region ready and well-positioned to be able to release unified data on a regular basis. But, you know, even that, I, I think using our coverage area and you guys too, for that matter, um, you know, we're pulling data from two different regions because Cuga County is technically central New York and, and the rest of, you know, our cover, our collective coverage area is in the Finger Lakes. So it's, it's complicated and people travel. And obviously we're going to talk a little bit later about the, the, COVID cluster strategy, the microcluster strategy, and how that's worked out for the state and for the region. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, to start the show off by talking a little bit about that because I think there's been some um, concern that we were aiming the criticism or I was aiming the criticism at county officials who I think are by and large just doing as much as they possibly can with you know a fairly limited tool belt. 
Well, I mean, with all due respect to small county health departments, I mean, they're probably not that busy a place during normal times, and now suddenly there's this demand for information and action out of them every single day for the last eight months. So I think they're probably not especially geared to do that. I'm sure they have no designated media person or spokesperson or anything. So they're trying to do the best that they can, and it's just, like you say, it's inconsistent from place to place to place. I mean, Ontario County, very early on, put together a very comprehensive dashboard town by town, and it tells you how many cases are active and how many are in the hospital, uh, how many were in long-term care facilities, how many weren't. Others may not have the resources to do that. So, I mean, I think they're doing the best that they can under tough circumstances, but I agree with you. It's just the, the information dissemination hasn't been very consistent. Even when you look on the national level, uh, I do a lot of times, I'll Google search for COVID deaths in the U.S., and if you look at the deaths, either nationally or in almost any state, the chart goes up and down and up and down and up and down, which I think is due more to when figures are reported than any real number of deaths. I, I doubt very seriously that the number of deaths are 1,000 one day, 3,000 the next, and 1,000 the day after that. So it's you know another one of those things where the infrastructure was never there to deal with this sudden demand for information on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think the other, for me, the other component of this that is concerning to to the end that it, it creates a little bit of confusion is the question that everybody is asking when they're looking at whatever data any county is releasing, what does the data mean? And when you have inconsistent pools of data going out in terms of what one county is saying versus another county, you could very easily live in, say, Ontario County and work in Monroe County or live in Wayne County and work in Seneca County. I mean, all you know, there's this connectivity between all of these counties that I think it's important to, uh, especially with that question that I just mentioned in mind, because, you know, it's very interesting. You mentioned the town-by-town data. And the fascinating thing to me has been um, the number of questions I've gotten since the pandemic started about specific towns where someone will literally say, oh, well, what about this town? There seems to be more cases in this town than there are in X, Y, and Z towns. And, you know, the my big, my big issue with that kind of data, like the total number data, which is what a lot of that is in most counties, is just like deaths, it paints a very it doesn't paint a good picture about what is actually happening in those communities. So I'll use an example, like uh, the town of Covert in Seneca County, I believe, has a significantly higher number of cases proportionally, if you look at how small it is population-wise, compared to other communities. And you can go outside of Seneca County, and there are other examples like that. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that there's more of a problem in covert or another community just because there have historically been more cases there than in other places it's you know cause and effect and i think a big a big piece of this too is you know we get really caught up in the uh the volume and we don't think about what this means in terms of of capacity and you know this jumps into the next topic so we can just go there now um, obviously, new orange zone uh, locations here in the Finger Lakes and in central New York. Um, orange zone restrictions for Rochester and Syracuse. Looks like Victor and parts of Ontario County are on pace to go into yellow zone restriction. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I um, caught up with uh, Bill Hammond of the Empire Center uh, for a podcast to talk about his uh, recent report in the Empire Center. Uh, exploring how effective the microcluster mitigation strategy from the state has actually been. Um, the the thesis of, of his reporting and the podcast is effectively uh, New York's overall rate is increasing at a, a significantly higher uh, percentage than even most other states in the U.S. In fact, uh, you know, New York is outpacing the national average in terms of, of growth of cases or, or the number of total cases coming in now. So um, it's an interesting story. His story was obviously very interesting. But 
it starts to to draw into question how the state is approaching the microcluster zones, how effective they are, and when you combine that with the data that is is either being presented in one location, one specific zip code, versus not being released in another zip code, it all creates a lot of uncertainty. And there are, good, bad, or indifferent, a lot of skeptics when it comes to this virus. And whether you want to, uh, you know, politicize it and and turn it into a right-left thing, or if you just want to, you know, simply look at it from a public health standpoint, whatever the case may be, you know, realistically, I, my my feeling at this point is that there needs to be a unified method for releasing data so that we can start to parse through that uncertainty and start to cut through some of the noise because it's starting to clutter the actual response to the pandemic. Well, I think media could do a lot better job of one of our jobs is supposed to be to interpret data and tell the public this is what this means. The microclusters, I think it's a better approach than the early March and April approach, which was just shut places down, you know, the entire state, put New York on pause. But there's a couple of problems with the microcluster. Number one is we're hearing, I just saw a story today where restaurateurs in the Rochester area say that they've been bombarded with customers from the West. When Erie County went in first, okay, I can't go to a restaurant in Erie County, great, I'll get in my car and go 30 miles across the line into Monroe County. Or if Monroe County goes yellow, then hey, we'll just go down to Ontario County and eat at the mall. If Victor goes yellow, then you go a few miles further down. That That's number one. The second thing is what we haven't seen throughout all of this. The governor talks all the time about science, but we, we haven't seen any, to my knowledge, comprehensive studies on how this virus spreads. Are gyms really a risk? I haven't seen any study that says so. But the governor, for whatever reason, includes gyms and includes movie theaters and includes churches. Uh, there was a story the other day that said that restaurants spread... I don't remember the source, but it said restaurant spread was not a significant means of transmission, that, that it was very small because they're doing the things they're supposed to do. They're requiring masks and they're sanitizing and all these things. So, and I've kind of said this since day one, we really need to have a better handle on how this actually spreads and shut those things down instead of what I think is really the state approach right now, which is to take basically guesses and say, we're going to shut this industry down and this industry down. And there's starting to be a pushback. There, there's a significant number of businesses now that I'm hearing are, are just contemplating ignoring these designations and going ahead because they say, if we don't, we're not coming back. We're shutting down for good. Yeah, I, I think, to your point, one of the issues that I have with using Rochester as an example, I live there, I live in Rochester, so this is this is something that I can speak to pretty, um, pretty easily. Um, I live in Henrietta, technically. Uh, anybody who's familiar with Rochester has at one time or another uh, been through that Jefferson Road corridor. Uh, very, very busy, very uh, commercially active, uh, excluded from the Orange Zone. Not included. Um, the Grease Ridge Mall corridor also excluded. Major shop, two major, two. I would argue Rochester's two largest shopping corridors entirely excluded. Now, what? Ask yourself, why were they excluded? My assumption is, or my feeling at this point is that they were excluded because if they were included, people would literally just go to Victor, because most people, I'll say. Victor, Henrietta, and Greece are the three major shopping areas for, other than, you know, you get Pittsburgh, but that's not, not necessarily the same type of deal. Um, you know, you have this, I think, the microcluster strategy is this attempt by the governor and by the state to, on one hand, appease the folks who want to see everything or most things shut down that aren't absolutely essential, even though there's no safeguard in place to protect the the people who would be affected by that um 
I mean federal money, while also giving a, a, a extending a bit of an olive branch, I would say, to people in these bigger shopping corridors while they try to figure out what the buying themselves time, I suppose, is what this really feels like. A um, couple other things, I guess, that that have popped up for me. The more I talk to folks about the microcluster strategy, and the more I think about it, this is what I'm left with. This policy isn't going to be effective if it isn't a truly local problem. And I think what we're seeing right now is that it isn't the fault of gyms or bars or restaurants that we're seeing COVID cases spike or increase. It's gatherings at home. And health officials have been railing on this topic for over a month now. And now we're at Thanksgiving. And the governor has even, you know, I mean, he said it pretty plainly this week, I think, Um, you know, the next 30 to 40 days are going to be really consequential in terms of uh, how bad this is going to get. If people gather over the holiday, like I think a lot of a lot of folks, unfortunately, still are going to have their full blown Thanksgiving uh, dinners, you know, things could really could really progress and get really really bad. Um, but you know, the the thing that I think that's a bit understated uh, with this microcluster strategy is the inequity of how different communities are categorized there's four tiers and in the finger lakes we have we have communities in all four tiers i believe um basically they're they're categorized seven i think seven hundred fifty thousand plus uh counties you've got 150,000 to 700,000 you've got under 50,000, 50,000 to 150,000, one, two, three, four. So think smallest to biggest. And, you know, they all have different rates of what the threshold is to enter a zone. And it is so, it just, it adds another layer of complexity. And I know, you know, early on in the pandemic, we were sitting here talking about how you need a nuanced approach to uh, dealing with the pandemic. But I can't help but think now that we are in a significantly different place than we were in the spring. In the spring, we were coming out of the winter months and people were getting outside and things, in terms of virus spread, things were changing in a good way. We're not trending that same direction now. So it's almost as if a widespread shutdown with appropriate with appropriate safeguards in place in terms of, of funding for the people who ultimately you know, will be affected by that would be a better approach than it was in the spring now. But, you know, another thing that I just, I, I getting back to the numbers that we were talking about a few minutes ago, um, I think in a lot of cases, especially with hospitalization rate, I think that that needs to be a rate. And I think the counties should be doing a better job of, getting to and they will definitely need the state's help to to execute this on a regular basis or figure out like how this would be executed but in some way shape or form those who are releasing the data need to show uh, the public not just the raw number of how many people are actively hospitalized because if you're in Seneca County and you see that nine people are hospitalized that is a big number for for Seneca County but when you're thinking about it in terms of population, in terms of other, in terms of, you know, just in terms of how many people are around, it feels like a low number. But when you realize that, you know, say in, in our area, there is only 30 or 40 available ICU beds or only, you know, 50 to 75 total hospital beds. I don't know what the numbers are specifically there, but I think giving the context, that context would be super helpful in terms of, again, limiting some of the skepticism that people have because they're asking, why is this a big deal? Probably need to do a better job of, of explaining to them why it's a big deal and why the numbers are, are important. Well, and I've been railing on this for a long time now, and that is the media's insistence on reporting on number of cases. What does case mean? It means a positive test. 
We, the only way we can know how many cases there are is how many positive tests we've had. Well, as the governor himself has said, the number of tests that we're doing has jumped tremendously over the early months in March and April. So naturally, if you're doing 10 times as many tests as you're doing in the spring, you're going to get more positive results. So what's more important is the percentage. And, you know, I don't know if you want to call me a skeptic. Maybe that's an accurate term. But for all of the, the noise and all of the oh my God that's going on right now, in New York State yesterday, for every 100 people tested for COVID, 97 of them don't have it. In Ontario County, in the entire history of the pandemic, 99 out of 100 people haven't gotten it. Am I saying that COVID is nothing and it doesn't? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that, that the, the level of fear and the level of hyperbole doesn't match the numbers when you look at the actual numbers. This is still a virus that isn't really that easy to spread and not many people have gotten it. I'm not saying don't be careful, but I'm saying, you know, I don't need the governor trying to scare me to death every day and and warn that we're all going to die if we have Thanksgiving dinner. Should we be careful? Sure. But let's have some real science on where it's spreading and how it's spreading and take that away. That's how we've always done it. We have flu every year. We've never in the past had zones where somebody said, oh, the town of Victor is now a yellow flu zone. They find out who's got it. They isolate them from everyone else until they're better, and life goes on. And for whatever reason, we haven't seemingly really tried that approach at all. It's been, the approach to me, it's been, let's assume everyone has it and go from there. Yeah, and and to that end, I think, um, you know, we know now that obviously it's not just just a flu. Like we 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 understand that. Um, but again, like to your point, I, I think you know this is a this is a communication issue from the state down, and it's just it just needs to be better. And you know people need to understand the data better, and that's partly on journalists, it's partly on the state, it's partly on everybody. But at the end of the day, um, it doesn't re- really matter whose fault it is at this point. It just needs to needs to be better. Uh, Another little tidbit here as far as uh, reporting goes. Cuga County says it's done sending out COVID exposure reports. Uh, They cited the widespread nature of the virus. Uh, Health officials said on Sunday they would stop releasing reports that indicate where people have been who have tested positive for COVID-19. I got about a half dozen emails a few hours after that story published yesterday. Um, Thoughts on that in terms of, of one county deciding to do this themselves? Well, I guess I can understand it for a couple of reasons. Number one is you reach a point where who's going to be able to keep track of them all. It was one thing when we were, you know, in the glory days of this summer when the infection rate was a half a percent, and you could say, okay, there was an exposure here or one there. Now you're going to have a dozen of those reports every day. And also, I think there's an increasing recognition by the health departments that a lot of people are ignoring these. I mean, they're they're hearing that there was an exposure possibility at Business X Saturday between 10 and 1, and somebody's sitting there going, okay, well, I was there during that time, but I don't feel sick, and I probably don't have it, so no, I'm not getting tested. So I think that's kind of a bow to reality as much as anything else at this point. Yeah, I, I think the the core of it is is just not worth the effort anymore. You know, I, I think... These health officials have said that they are getting pushback. They are getting berated by members of the public when they're trying to do contact tracing and they have a job to do. And the messaging, I think, for the most part has been politicized to the point where, like, I use Seneca County as an example. They they published a, a, a graphic. It was either yesterday or the day before that showed the incubation period of the virus. And they're within, you know, a short amount of time. There's... 50 plus comments and it's totally political and it's people yelling at each other about the virus being a hoax and this that and the other thing and it's just at the end of the day i think in in some capacity again getting back to our earlier point if if the the messaging or the organization isn't going to improve so that 
there's a clearer spill of data every day or a better path for it, you know, it's just not worth the effort of of these health officials. It's just too it's too much. Like their argument is good, bad, or indifferent, that people should be acting people should act like the virus is everywhere. If that's their approach, then why do they need to release individual data or individual uh, reports on on exposure? And also, I would argue that, you know, if these messages are falling on deaf ears, there's the 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 damage control part of this too, right? Like for the businesses who are basically being repeatedly, for some readers, I'll use this as an example. We publish a story about. X or Y business having a COVID exposure, we immediately get get feedback saying you're dragging this business through the mud. So apply that same thought process to the health department. If the health department is going to be in any county is going to be accused of dragging a business through the mud because they're reporting that there was a potential COVID exposure there and they're doing it over and over again, you know, and it isn't working in terms of educating people, well, then just stop doing it. What, what, do you, what do you gain from continuing to do it? Well, you talked earlier about not politicizing the issue. Unfortunately, this is America in 2020, and there isn't any issue that we can't politicize. Largely, people on the left are being more careful and are more likely to wear masks and are more likely to heed these warnings, and people on the right are less likely to. They're more likely to think it's a hoax Someone just showed recently, if you look at a map of where the infection is the highest right now, it looks very much like the Electoral College map. Red states are being hit harder right now than blue states are. So there's definitely that gap there. And, and, you know, I'm someone who leans left in most of my politics, and I've tended to lean rightward in my thoughts about COVID. But if if people, you know, again, I'm with you. The health departments, they don't need this grief. No. If I'm working in the county health department, I don't need people berating me when I'm trying to do my job and say, hello, uh, we know that you are at this place where COVID might have been. You should probably get tested. And they're being told, you know, bleep you and leave me alone. So who can blame them for saying, okay, you don't want us to help you, then we won't help you. Yeah, and... You know, keying a bit on in on Cuba and and Seneca counties today, but you know the the other story that I wanted to talk about that was COVID related that I thought was really interesting to this end was sort of the animosity between the business community and some of the health officials who are left trying to to implement and enforce the state's uh, COVID guidelines. So you know, you mentioned earlier what happens if a business decides to just not not abide by the rules. Well, I think we started to see that play out in Cayuga County. And, and I think now the, the Auburn citizen is in, is in the process of working through some reporting and answering questions about that because Wegmans in Cayuga County was, uh, was essentially given a consent order. They didn't sign it. They paid the $50 fine, but they haven't been brought back before the, the health board since. Um, but we did see yesterday that a number of other businesses had been fined and one of them actually got a big fine, a grocery store in Port Byron, they were fined $500 um, instead of the normal $50 fine because it was their second offense. Now, the, the argument to that, and uh, Robert Harding mentioned on, on Twitter this uh, last night that he'd gotten plenty of feedback from folks saying, hey, look, like this is clearly not being enforced universally because I see people every day in Wegmans, in Walmart, in, and this, I think, is a very um, delicate topic because I think this is, to use the, the governor's uh, phrase or term from the last week, uh, I think this is in some ways uh, good, bad, or indifferent county officials picking and choosing where they're enforcing or what they feel like is enforceable. I think there's an attitude that we can enforce this on a small mom-and-pop business, but it is much more difficult to go head-to-head with Wegmans corporate or Walmart corporate. And at the end of the day, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing. I think it's an argument that, you know, the fines should really go out the window. Should there be some sort of process in place? Yes, but I think at the same time, you know, my question is, where's the state's support there? 
The state says, hey, local local health departments, it's up to you to enforce whether Walmart is is imposing or, or enforcing the rules properly in its store. Okay, what if what if Seneca County decides to say, well, they're not. They find them. Their lawyers, their their corporate lawyers, turn around and and laugh and say, "Yeah, we'll give you your fifty or five hundred dollars, but we're not going to sign any consent orders." <laughs> See you later. And you know, is Seneca County supposed to go head to head with a gigantic corporation? Is Cuga County supposed to go head to head with a giant corporate uh, Wegmans entity? That to me is is above all laughable. You know, at the end of the day. This really comes down to the state needing to provide resources again to these counties so that they can enforce these things if they're going to seriously be enforced. And I, my argument or my, my logic is, is that if the state is not going to help counties enforce these regulations against big entities that they're clearly out, outsized with – then they probably shouldn't be trying to enforce them anywhere al- along along that line of, of giving fines to small businesses. I mean, that's just going to hurt a small business. You can keep fining them, and maybe you can even shut them down. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's just that's just hurting them. Well, this is, I think, the predictable end result of criminalizing behavior that's not normally criminal. I, I mean, you can't you can't mandate behavior by edict. There are certain things that human beings are going to continue to do regardless of how much you criminalize them. Now, law should be enforced equally, but I also think it's a pretty weak argument. Our mothers never let us get away with it when we said, well, I yeah, I did that, but my brother did something worse. So I think it's a very weak argument on the part of businesses to say, well, yeah, we broke the law, but we shouldn't be penalized because someone else broke the law too. I the other thing is that this this whole thing fascinates me because maybe I don't get out and about that much, but when I do, I see almost universal compliance with mask edicts. So I don't know where these, you know, I go to Wegmans in Geneva and Canandaigua and everybody I see's got a mask. So I I don't know where these I mean, I understand there are certain businesses that, that are kind of flouting it, and, and we all know who some of them are just from talking to our friends. But I guess I'm not seeing this mass mask refusal that everybody seems to think is out there. And maybe, like I say, maybe I'm just not going to the right places. Well, I think that's a good point. But I'm going to say this, that I think no matter where it is, it's fairly isolated, except for those cases where you're talking about where it's being flooded that they're not they're not following the rules. So here we go. Maybe there's one out of every 200 shoppers that walk through Wegman's front door or, or Walmart's doors that aren't wearing a mask. And you look at a mom pop store and it's one out of every, say, 20. And one is going to feel like it's happening more than the other one because it's, you've got your volume issue there. But, you know, the other part of this, too, is, is, you know, I think no matter where you go, most people are just wearing their mask. They're not they're not not wearing their mask. Now, I've seen examples posted to social media different and even just in the Rochester area um, of of employees not wearing their mask properly or not wearing their mask at all or having it down while talking to someone at stores like Wegmans, at stores like Walmart, Mom Pop plays do the whole spread. Um, but I think if you're if you're out looking for it, you're going to find it eventually. Um, probably the the bigger issue here with enforcement in general is that you can't really fully enforce it, no matter what. You can't be everywhere and you know, this is just one of those, you know, it feels a lot less clean and a lot less, you know, above board because of this, you know, it's being applied seemingly more heavily handed here than here. And that's even something that can depend on geography. You know, maybe Cuga County is a little more uh, on the game as far as that goes, being able to get multiple places and make sure that they're following up in a more efficient way than say Wayne County can or say Seneca County can or maybe Ontario County is doing something that Seneca County is or you know this just goes on and on and on and again 
keep harping on it, state response, inadequate. Well, Not I, I think some of this, too, frankly, is hating the big guy. I mean, we talked on our last podcast about Google and the lawsuit against Google and, and how people hate entities like Google and Walmart. I think it's a little bit of that with Wegmans. I think a lot of people just, they resent big, successful entities. I, I mean, I, you know, I was on Twitter today, and, and some people were complaining. There was a, a video being circulated of Danny Wegman in one of the stores, mask hanging from his ear. But, you know, at the end of the day, Wegmans are very good retailers. So early on in the pandemic, they realized that having a store that looks like a hospital ward isn't very attractive to doing business. So they said early on to their associates, if you feel like you need to wear a mask, that's fine, but we're not going to make you. Later on, when it became a mandate, I think they've pretty much made sure all their people comply. So, again, I, I haven't been to the Auburn store, so maybe there's a whole different thing going on in the Auburn store or in various stores, but in the two stores that I go to, I, I don't see anybody not wearing a mask. You occasionally, we all see the one down. It's down below the nose. or I mean, you know, mine's months old. The strap starts getting loose and it falls down. We all see that. But I, I just, I, again, I don't see this mask refusal to wear masks happening with some exceptions. Again, I, I know that there are some businesses that say, to heck with this, we're not doing it, we're flouting it. But I, I don't think it's that widespread. And then the other thing is, I think more and more people are starting to ask the question, if masks work, then how come we get all these shutdowns even when we do it? You, you know, we, we, the schools, you have to wear masks, you have to clean. People are coming in and disinfecting the schools every day or every other day, and yet they still get shut down and forced to go remote. So it's, it's just, that's been my biggest gripe. It isn't so much that I'm a skeptic. My complaint since day one has been the response has not been logical and consistent. I, I mean, the, the governor with, you know, it's one thing for churches and another thing for gyms. Well, why? What's the difference whether 10 people gather in a gym or 10 people gather in a church? Well, and that was another one of the pieces of criticism that I saw and heard um, after the the new distinction, the orange zone uh, restrictions went into effect in, in Monroe County, was that, you know, you take a, a town like Brighton and there's like five or six different school districts in, in or including parts of, of Brighton. And you have all these different standards. So some school districts are going to have to go into a different testing model than others are going to if they want to test out. And they're going to have to go remote regardless, even though they have, you know, low rates of, of the virus. You know, I think that's one thing. If we can say there's, there's something good that we've learned over the last two to three months, it's that the virus really hasn't been an issue in schools. Kids are, generally speaking, safer from the virus while they're at school, physically at school, than when they're out in the wild. So, you know, as far as that goes, it just... So that being the case, why aren't all our schools fully open for in-person learning? The kids are safer there than they are at home, it seems like. But, I, I, but again, that's the inconsistency of the response. And I think we're getting there. I think that if, if I'm prognosticating this whole situation, if I'm gaming this out a little bit, I think probably by January, February, regardless of where the numbers are, I think schools will be back in semi-normal fashion in a in a in in-person learning environment. And I think, degree. was it not, uh, I believe it was, wasn't the CDC, did they not say that we never said people shouldn't go to school? I, I think that was a case of, and that's what happens in situations like this, is people rushing to be more safe than the next guy. I think a lot of this, the schools have kind of put on themselves out of fear of, let's, I, one of my bugaboos about public education is that they operate out of fear of being sued all the time because nobody wants to get sued by the parent of the child who gets COVID and dies mm -hmm. and they can trace the exposure to school. But again, it's just whatever the response is going to be, and, and you keep, you've talked about this several times today, and, and that's one of the problems a lot of people have with Governor Cuomo is that he 
he will announce the edict and then step out of the way and say it's not my problem after that. So you have uh, in, in what's probably an unprecedented move, I mean, the State Sheriff's Association put out a statement about Thanksgiving saying that we're not going to do this, and then the governor turns around and, with no sense of irony whatsoever, calls the sheriffs dictators. Yeah, and you know, sort of getting off the getting off the COVID train a little bit. There was a couple other stories I wanted to touch on today. Um, one from your neck of the woods. We talked about it before you before you uh, before we started here. Uh, a former town clerk and uh, tax collector in the town of Potter was recently charged after an investigation involving the state comptroller's office and local law enforcement. Uh, wanted to talk about this a little bit today because of the questions it raises again about the quality of small town government. Um, in this case, a total of around $24,000 was allegedly stolen. Uh, the clerk was arrested on a whole number of charges. If you want to check that out, stories online. Um, interesting, I think, because I'm just ballparking, but I want to say in the last two to three years, there's been probably like a half dozen of these stories <laughs> where official in small town commits long-term fraud or some sort of you know crime involving money and the only thing safeguarding it seems these communities is either a whistleblower or the state comptroller off comptroller's office and they obviously do regular audits of different things and things like that but typically they receive a tip and then they investigate or conduct sort of an off-season audit we'll call it if if necessary and it's interesting to me because I think, you know, if there's any erosion of the comptroller's office over the next several years because of um, because of COVID and because of the budget constraints connected to it, could put a lot of these small communities in a very bad way if there are any bad actors. And I am not saying a majority of of people in local office or local politics or local government are bad or fraudsters or trying to steal or anything else like that. I'm just saying like the outliers could cost a lot of these communities more money down the road because at the end of the day, $24,000 here was stolen over a number of years and that's $24,000 that the taxpayers in, in Potter aren't getting back. And so, you know, I think this is one of those examples where this is good reason to really sort of double down on making sure that that your community, the place where you live and you call home and you pay taxes, is well represented at all levels of government and, and to, to hold those folks accountable all the time so that they don't feel like this is something that they can get away with. Well, I will say this because it isn't limited to government. It tends to be small. We see this in youth sports organizations oh, and you know absolutely. volunteer fire departments. Small organizations where the financial procedures are very loose and informal and very often when there's no real oversight. So I think the answer is to just make sure that you don't turn the keys over to one individual without ever checking once in a while. I mean, I, I, so I think that towns themselves ought to make sure there's a second person who takes a look at the books from time to time and says, well, okay, we should have a lot more than this you know, or explain this entry or that entry. So it's 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 one of the features of small town government is that things tend to be a little more informal and a little more loosely regulated. So I think it's it's your overall point's a good one, but I just I think that organizations, whether they're government or like I say, a youth sports organization or, or uh you know, a scout troop, anybody that's handling money like that, there just needs to be oversight in place so that one person doesn't do all of the financial transactions over a period of four or five years with no one else ever taking a look. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, you know, obviously in this case, I believe it was over, I want to say a number of like four or five years. So, you know, it's easy to see or understand or, or kind of get a grasp for why $24,000 spread out over that amount of time could slip through the cracks. Um you know, if you don't have really good oversight. And, you know, like you said, we see it in a lot of different areas, but, you know, I always say like local government is the is is the one where, you know, use the town of Potter as an example. I don't know how many votes that 
you know, town council or town clerk or supervisor or whatever the case may be, uh, nets in a community like that. But, you know, we could probably go back and I bet it's probably less than a thousand votes. So at the end of the day, you know, this is, is, this is a very easy way that the average person can get involved in their local government and have an impact and make sure that things like this don't happen in the future. Yeah, and, and just keeping up that oversight, usually what ends up happening, I don't know the exact specifics of the Potter case, generally what happens is it starts out very small. Sometimes it even starts out, I think, without bad intent. Mm-hmm. Somebody's in a bad way, they need 100 bucks. I'll take it from the till and I'll replace it. And maybe they do. But then a couple months later, now I need a couple of hundred bucks, and then you don't replace it, and then you say, gee, nobody's, I got away with a couple hundred. What happens if I take 400? So that's generally how a lot of these people wind up being caught, is it, it gets bigger and bigger. And, of course, they have to hope that there won't be any kind of state audit or something, because then when that happens, you're really stuck. But I think that's kind of the pattern that these sort of things take in small organizations. Yeah, and the the last story I wanted to touch on, uh, kind of connected to everything that we've been talking about. I didn't put it in the script, so I apologize on that one. Um, but the Lansing Star uh, is going to be ceasing publication at the end of the at the end of December if they don't find a buyer between now and then. It's a weekly. It's one of those small town uh, newspapers. Uh, Joe Selzone actually interviewed the editor. I want to say last week or a couple days ago. Uh, at WHCU. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation, I think mainly because there is a, a... This is going to start happening more and more. The weeklies are going to go first. We're going to probably see some erosion in in uh, dailies, perhaps going down to weekly or things like that. But there's definitely going to be a continued trend downward for the, the media landscape, especially in these these communities that have relied on you know, town newspapers or, or, or town news organizations. And, you know, it's just, it gets back to the point, man. How many times have we sat here and talked about how people need to buy in? And, you know, I, I am always the one who's saying local ownership, local ownership, local ownership, that matters. But if you also aren't innovating nonstop and trying to make your product better and just constantly working to, to turn the corner as an organization, whether you're you're in print, whether you're in digital, whether you're radio, whatever the case may be, it is very easy to get left behind. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, I think this is probably going to be a community that just doesn't have a a a newspaper or, or an outlet that you know dedicates itself to it. And that's a real loss, unfortunately, for for the community. But it something is, we're going to see I, happen. I think there might be some opportunities for some entrepreneurs there, instead of having a weekly newspaper in Lansing, what if somebody or a couple people got together and started up a website like a fingerlakes1.com and, and do for the Lansing area what you do for Seneca County? The, the biggest thing that's hit newspapers is when information became easily and freely available on the internet, nobody wants to read a story anymore about what happened four days ago because they already know. Yeah. And so that started the erosion. And that, and we talked about it last week, Google and, uh, you know, for sale sites that have taken away classified advertising. So I think there's still an opportunity there for local journalism, but I think it's going to look different. I, I You know, w- with a newspaper, you've got printing costs and all those kind of things. Uh, somebody could, you know, a couple of young, hungry reporters that wanted to really dig around and find content and, and do what you do, frankly. I, I admire what Finger Lakes One does. You talk to a lot of people, you enterprise stories, you dig behind the headlines to find out what's really going on. So I think that's the opportunity for people in some of these communities because if you can't make a go of it with a, a weekly newspaper, maybe you can make a go of it with, and, and maybe it's not even a full website, maybe it's just a blog. Mm-hmm. You know that reports on Lansing going ons, but there's a couple of posts a day, and and somebody takes the time. The challenge, of course, is monetizing that. That's the challenge for all of us that we're going to face in the next several years. Yeah, I, I think. So I actually think monetizing it doesn't have to be the most difficult thing in the world if you are really focusing on Lansing. It is a lot easier. So the balance that we always have to strike here is that obviously there are a lot of people still who 
who think back to what we were 20 years ago, fingerlinks1.com, that is, and think about like Seneca Falls online. And we originated in Seneca County. But if we were solely dedicated to Seneca County, we would not exist right now. And I think that's kind of the reality of the situation. Like we have basically carved out a, a niche in in between Rochester, Syracuse, and Ithaca. And, you know, it's it's finding the opportunity. That said, I think it's a lot easier to monetize if you if you are focused on a specific town or a specific community. I think in that situation, in all honesty, I think you could probably take Lansing and a couple other neighboring communities and broaden the horizon a little bit, but sort of connect the dots for people in terms of the reporting and in terms of how you're you're covering those communities and it would probably be it would probably be doable with with just one person or you know two people if they wanted to kind of split the the load there but you know at the end of the day the whole the whole monetizing bit for me is real simple if the consumers want this long term they're going to have to pay for it no matter what we are a free pl- we're a totally free platform but at the end of the day the amount of work that we put into it every day, and I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about the, the reporters that work for us, the stuff we do in the studio here, it's not monetized to a, a an appropriate or equal level in terms of output. So in no way, shape, or form is is this venture worthwhile in the, in the truly capitalistic sense. But you get people who, who are passionate about, you know, whatever it is that they're passionate about, reporting, reporting in specific areas, reporting in specific sort of uh, coverage zones, like the way Peter Mantius covers uh, exclusively environmental stuff, uh, the way Jim Meany in Geneva specifically covers the city of Geneva. Um, you know, my concern with that approach is it does open the door for folks to look at it and say, that's just activism reporting. That's just a form of activism that, and this isn't an argument that's ever been made in the last, you know, before the last four years, frankly, but it's something that we're seeing a lot more of now where if someone, if you have a very divided issue and you see a news organization lean into one side or another more or less, it is very easy for a lot of the people who consume that to point and say that's just activism, it's not journalism. Well, that may be, but on the other hand, Rupert Murdoch created Fox News to fill a niche for people on the right who felt like the mainstream media wasn't giving it to them straight. So, I mean, maybe that's the future of media, is bubble media, where you start a website that's you know, exclusively for conservative-leaning people in Lansing and another one that's for liberal-leaning people in Lansing. Maybe that's the future of it. Well, I think part of the problem there is always, at least in my experience, you know, we have over the year, or I'll say over the last six six to eight months, there was a point in the fall where we took a little bit of heat because we didn't cover the uh, Back the Blue rally in uh, that happened in Seneca County. But I didn't have anybody to cover it, and we had already covered two Back the Blue rallies that had happened in pretty short succession prior to that. There was one in August, there was one in July, one in Wayne County, one in Geneva. And, you know, rather than sort of rehashing the same the same thing again, it just didn't didn't get into it. But, you know, the at the end of the day, and this is where I was going with that, you know, ultimately a lot of these small communities, you have one group of electeds or the community or whatever the case may be who are very accessible. And you have one group that is not. And typically they're on opposite sides of the political coin. So as, you know, as reporters, maybe my biggest frustration as, as someone who still has a beat, um, you know, it's, it's frustrating when it's a lot easier to connect with Democrats than it is to connect with Republicans, generally speaking. Well, it's also a lot, of, a lot easier to connect with official sources than with outside, yeah. let's say, protesters, for lack of a better word. I, I I remember several years ago interviewing someone for a position at our company, and I asked him for a critique of our, our news product, and he said, too many guys in dark suits. And that has stuck with me ever since, meaning that, and, and we, we all do this, we tend to cover the official, 
because they have media people, they're accessible, we have relationships built up with them. The outside people who are sort of attacking the system are harder to get a hold of and don't have the media savvy and the public relations savvy, so it leads people to think that we're leaning one way or the other, when like you say, sometimes it's like, we'd love to cover your thing, but we didn't know about it. Well, and, and, you know, using the Back to Blue Rally, this is something that I haven't really talked about on the podcast yet, but, you know, using that as an example, I wasn't available that weekend, and typically if it's a Seneca County thing, I'm the one covering it. Right. Um, I've got people for other counties, but we Seneca County is something that I still hold myself. And, you know, it. we knew about it, we heard about it two weeks before that. I connected with a couple of the organizers. I said, hey, send us photos, send us video. We'll try to build something. We'll try to build some sort of profile out on the event based on the, the media that you're able to send us. You know, if it's going to be attended by thousands of people or allegedly thousands of people, it shouldn't be that hard to snap some pictures with your smartphone. And I'm sure they did. But they didn't send them to us. And, you know, at the end of the day, we can only do so much when we're producing, you know, between 20 and 30 Stories that not just Seneca County, like it's very easy for for people who read Finger Lakes One. If you live in Seneca Falls or Waterloo, like I said, because of what we were 20 years ago, it's very easy to to say, well, geez, they aren't paying attention to this important thing. No, we are. We're just paying attention to it equally and proportionally to all the other important things that are going on in the entire region. So, you know, it's just, and again, if... People, we have, I plug it from time to time, we have a Patreon account. And we have a Patreon portal where people can subscribe to us the way they do a newspaper, but it's not required. Um, you know, if we had a thousand uh, supporters who were contributing, you know, 20 bucks a month or nine bucks a month or whatever the case may be, the way a newspaper has, you know, say seven to 8,000 subscribers who are paying X number of dollars a month. We would be able to do things at a completely different scale than what we do now, an entirely yeah. different oh, scale. Sure. So, like, it's this—it's this idea. It's not—it's not intent. It's just what what is actually feasible. Right. I mean, so would we in radio and, yeah. and on our website. I mean, it's you know, a generation ago, uh, you know, you talk about starting out as Seneca Falls Online. A generation ago, we had WSFW in Seneca Falls yeah. Yeah. that had a news person. <laughs> We had WNYR in Waterloo that mm-hmm. had a news person. WGVA in Geneva had a news person. WAUB in Auburn. WCGR in Canandaigua. Now all of those are one entity. And, you know, yeah, we'd love to have unlimited personnel. Uh, if you want that to happen, buy lots and lots of radio advertising. And that's like that's <laughs> the that's the thing. It's like people sit and they say, well, geez, you guys just aren't doing it. All of that, like you just named off five stations that all need news people, all need production staff, all need engineers, all need like And that's all why of there was a consolidation yeah. in our industry, like there have been in newspapers and others, because the the advertising market no longer supported having all those individual people. Same reason school districts consolidate, uh you know, same reason that companies merge, you know, Miller and Coors become one because mm-hmm. The, the market doesn't allow you to have the expense of maintaining all those separate entities. <sighs> so we're going the right direction, though, right? We're going the right direction, aren't we? Well, uh, you're talking about the media or the world? I'm talking, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about us in our, corner of the, in our corner of the media because I feel like, at least in our bubbles, we are seeing good things happening and we're at least buying ourselves some time here, right? I hope so. I mean, I, I, I'm proud of what we do. Uh, I admire what you do, and, and I compare it to a lot of similar-sized communities around the country, and I see a lot less. You know, yeah. when, when Sometimes when we get down and it's like, boy, I wish we could do more, I say, okay, here's the website of a similar-sized radio station <laughs> in a similar-sized community, and look what they've got for a product compared to what we have. So yeah. I, I hope that the consumers of media realize that for a little small area between two major cities, I think you can find some pretty good coverage, whether it's us, whether it's Finger Lakes One, like yeah. you say, Geneva Believer, whether it's whoever. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people. We're trying, and that's I think that's the best we can do. 
All right. Where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday, but not the next two days? Don't listen. To, well, you can listen, but you won't be listening to me, which ne- <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> a deal breaker for a lot of people. I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News on WGVA in Geneva. That's 95.9 and 1240. Don't forget, 95.9 frequency will move December 1st to 106.3. Mm. And uh, we'll continue talking about that. And in Auburn, I'm on WAUB, which is 98.1 FM and 1590 AM. All right, Ted. Have a good Thanksgiving. Same to you. Let's keep uh, let's keep being media. Yeah. The Weekend Debrief is a production of FL1 Digital Media. Check the show out on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Have a question for us? Email it to debrief at fingerlakes1.com. You can also check out our daily debrief, which is a shortened version of this podcast, where we dive into local issues and headlines with the people behind them. Check that out by visiting fingerlakes1.com slash daily. You can also find those episodes in this very feed on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening from. Thanks again for joining us today. We will see you next time.